Our sermon text is Matthew 7, verses 7 through 12. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? So, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. So far, our reading in God's words, let's pray for his blessing on our study of it. Oh, Father, we ask that you would work through and in spite of human words and human frailties. We ask that you would communicate your truth to us. That you would convince us, convict us, encourage us according to our needs. But Lord, even more than our needs, we desire that you would be honored and pleased by having your servants say what is right about you. So guide us, we ask, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Here in Matthew chapter 7, the portion that we've read, we're getting close to the end of Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount, that compendium of his teaching that covers Matthew 5, Matthew 6, and Matthew 7. He's going to conclude it with a series of one of the other challenges, a series of uh, warnings that there is only one right gate, that there is only one right kind of teacher, that there is only one... uh, right uh, way into the kingdom of heaven at the end, and only one right way to build your life and to beware all the counterfeits that come with misunderstanding or rejecting what he's taught us in the sermon. So we are here in verses 7 through 12 of Matthew 7, right before that great rhetorical conclusion that challenges us to a response. And before he wraps up the body of the Sermon on the Mount, In our text, Jesus returns to the topics of prayer and the righteous treatment of others. I say returns because Jesus already addressed those topics earlier in the sermon. Concerning prayer, he taught us the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 6, and around that he also taught us not to be hypocritical, not to be manipulative, not to be pagan-like in our prayers. He also taught us a great deal in this sermon about the righteous treatment of others. You can go back to chapter 5 sometime if you like and see how he applies the Ten Commandments to our hearts and our behaviors as he gave us uh, some instruction about uh, murder and adultery and uh, loving your enemy and being like your Father in heaven. So prayer and the righteous treatment of others have both been addressed already, but Jesus is giving us a little more here in Matthew 7, plus he's giving us a new challenge to think about. 
And that challenge, as we'll see, is the question of how my relationship to God, expressed in prayer, and my relationship to my neighbor, how are those relationships, well, related to each other? Let me summarize our study this evening under these three headings. First, Jesus assures us it's worth it to pray. Second, Jesus commands us, keep the golden rule. And third, Jesus teaches us those things are connected. Jesus assures us it's worth it to pray, verses 7 through 11. Jesus commands us, keep the golden rule, that's verse 12. And then Jesus teaches us those things are connected. In the first place, then, this evening, Jesus is assuring us that it's worth it to pray. Now, he doesn't use the word prayer, but that's what he means by ask and it will be given to you, seek and you will find, knock and it will be opened to you. Asking, seeking, knocking, he means approaching God for the things that we desire. Now, back in chapter 6 with the Lord's Prayer, Jesus taught his followers, you know, how to pray, how not to pray. Uh, He... um, He taught them some of the contents of their prayers, but now he's talking about the the manner and motive of our prayer. Why would you do this? Why would you be so urgent? Why would you be so constant in prayer? Why pray? And one reason is because the God to whom we pray is your Father. Jesus calls God your Father here in our text. How much more will your Father who is in heaven Give good things to those who ask him. Uh, God is not an abstraction in the sky. He is not an unmoved mover. He is not like the graven images of the nations. He is not the uh, imagined tyrant of the older brother in the father's household in Luke 15. He is a good and gracious father. Jesus' argument that he'll make in this text depends on the fatherliness of God, right? Because fathers give good gifts. Now, if you were coming to some kind of trickster or some kind of tyrant, you couldn't depend on receiving good gifts when you ask for them. But he is your father. Jesus taught his disciples to pray that way, to address God as father back in the Lord's Prayer, our father in heaven. And all of these references, even though Jesus himself is the son of the father eternally, and in a special way that he does keep the distinction clear about, He also allows us to call God our Father because in our salvation, one of the great privileges is we are adopted into the family of God. We can consider God our Father because in a binding and biblical way, he says he's our Father. Otherwise, we would have no access to God, no familiarity with God, no confidence that when we cry out, Abba, anyone would be there to hear us. And so the first thing I suppose we should talk about tonight is whether God is your father for the sake of Jesus Christ. Have you as a believer been given the right to be called sons of God, as the Apostle John suggests? All who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And as Paul says in Galatians 3, in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. You can hear in both of those scriptures the connection of believing in Jesus Christ, putting your faith for salvation, faith to be redeemed from sin and death in Jesus Christ, 
being the identifier of those who are adopted into the family of God. So if you are a believer tonight, not a believer of facts merely, but a believer in Jesus as your Savior and your Lord, then in fact, yes, God is your Father for his sake. You have been reconciled to him who otherwise was an offended judge, who otherwise may have been distant, whose wrath otherwise may have loomed over you. But in Christ Jesus, if your faith is in him, Christ has by his sacrifice reconciled us to our Father. So it's worth it to pray because you're talking to your Father. It's also worth it to pray because... Insistent asking is the Father's promised means of giving. I'll say that again. Insistent asking is the Father's promised means of giving. This is not the only passage, only book of the Bible that teaches us this, but it's one of them. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. Jesus doesn't at this point say what we're asking for. His words can be applied to all of our prayer requests in general. I've heard some guesses as to what we might be asking for in verse 7, but I don't think they're helpful. Uh, It is meant to describe your prayer life broadly. Ask, seek, knock. And the first thing I'd like us to notice, especially in verses 7 and 8, more than the verses that follow, is that Jesus is talking about asking as opposed to not asking. You see, we often rush to the question of whether or not we will receive. Right? He who asks, um, it will be given to you. You will find it. It will be open to you. So, will I receive or won't I receive? But the concern of verses 7 and 8 is not will you receive, but will you ask? Right? Uh, If you were to underline words to provide emphasis in your English Bible, uh, you wouldn't underline the wills in verse 7 and 8. You would underline uh, the asking part. Ask and it will be given. Seek and you'll find. Knock and it will be open. You're expecting the door to open without you knocking? You're expecting to find without seeking? For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks it will be opened. As we read in John 16, verse 24, until now you have asked nothing in my name, ask and you will receive. James 4, verse 2 puts the idea negatively, you do not have because you do not ask. So, Jesus wants us to ask and ask insistently and continuously. Uh, These Verbs are in the present tense, and a lot of scholars uh, warn you against over-translating it, but it carries the idea of a continuous activity. Keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking. Uh, This is not a one time back in 1994 I asked a thing. This is to be characteristic of us as sons of the Father. Be askers, be seekers, be knockers, and then insistent as well. Uh, Some even see in the words asking, seeking and knocking, uh, an ascending kind of urgency, maybe, maybe not. But there's definitely an insistent idea or tone to this, and it comes out even more clearly in the same teaching that Luke records in Luke chapter 11. In Luke 11, between the Lord's Prayer and the asking, seeking, knocking passage, because they're both in there, 
Between them, listen to what Jesus says. And listen for the insistence of the prayer. Which of you has a friend who will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, do not bother me, the door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed, I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he's his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. That's the conclusion to the Lord's Prayer uh, that follows the Lord's Prayer in Luke chapter 11. So, the way that we are encouraged to receive good gifts is by this continuous, this insistent asking. If our prayers as Christians are cold, and insincere, or they're repetitive, and you know how it can be in a spiritual dry season, perhaps, where your prayers wither down to a few mumbled platitudes and repeated phrases before mealtime. Well, your soul is not well, if that's what you find yourself doing. Christ calls his followers to a different kind of attitude and a different practice of prayer. Ask, seek, and knock. Another reason why it's worth it to pray, not only is God your father, and not only is insistent asking the way he says that you'll receive, but also because what you will receive are good gifts. The father gives good gifts when he is asked. This is the focus of verses 9, 10, and 11. Now we're talking about what you'll receive. Which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Now, obviously Jesus is speaking about what is normal and instinctive on the part of parents. He's not, you know, talking about abusive or pathological parents what you would normally expect, even among those who are sinners, is that parents know how to give good gifts to their children. It's part of their parental instinct. By the way, Jesus does affirm total depravity here as a by-the-way statement. You then who are evil. He doesn't even defend it. He just assumes it. You know, uh, the fact that we are all righteous, uh, not, none of us is righteous, rather, uh, no, not one, um, that's what's in view here. Uh, we do not do everything we could possibly do evil, but everything about us is evil. Everything in us is affected by evil, uh, so that we can't think clearly or feel rightly or act with pure motives. Everything in us is affected by sin, including our parenting and our praying. But despite that thorough brokenness, Jesus says you still know how to give good gifts, don't you? See, he's making a lesser to greater argument. Evil earthly fathers give good gifts, so how about a perfect heavenly father who's not evil? Surely his gifts will be good. The examples he gives are giving bread rather than a stone, and fish rather than a serpent, 
Uh, bread and fish were staple items in this culture. Uh, they're not asking for anything extravagant here. It's like in the Lord's Prayer where Jesus teaches us to ask for our daily bread. The stone and the serpent that the Father does not give in these verses are uh, visually deceptive substitutes, right? Like uh, stone might look kind of like bread, as when the devil tells Jesus to turn these stones to bread. A uh, serpent might visually look Uh, like a fish or certain kinds of fish. Uh, Luke makes a different comparison. Luke has Jesus talking about uh, stone versus bread and eggs versus scorpions. So so Luke's emphasis is, as he records Jesus teaching this, you know, which he probably taught it many times. Luke is emphasizing the harm the father won't do, whereas Matthew's text is emphasizing the tricks, the trickery the father won't play. But the ideas are closely related. The father is not malicious. He's not cruel or careless. He will give good gifts to his children, much better than even evil fathers know to do. And so Jesus would have us pray expectantly to the Father, expecting good things. Now, praying expectantly doesn't mean praying presumptuously that I'm going to get exactly what I want, the way that I want it, and the time that I want it. Uh, There are statements like this in Scripture, uh, which are sometimes pressed to that conclusion, if not by bad theologians, then perhaps by despondent Christians who are like, well, I asked for stuff and I didn't get it, right? As if to say God hasn't kept his word. Well, we do need to remember that Jesus is being somewhat rhetorical here, and we do need to notice that even in the uh, Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gives you these absolute-sounding statements, which you could carefully qualify with other scriptures if you needed to, but it would undercut his point to stop and say, now, hold on a minute. Uh, Let's consider all these biblical considerations that you need to ask things according to God's will, 1 John 5, 14. You need to ask things according to Jesus' name through his mediation for his sake, John 14, 13. You need to ask for things that aren't self-indulgent. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions, James 4, 3 says. Now, Jesus doesn't go into all those qualifications because he's trying to get us to the asking part. All those things are biblically accurate. But they don't serve Jesus' interests now, and he's trying to spur on prayerless disciples to become prayerful disciples. Even in Matthew, in this gospel, not every prayer that we read of gets answered yes. Jesus will tell the story about uh, the virgins or bridesmaids in chapter 25 that want to enter into the wedding late. They're pleading, they're knocking, and it's denied. Hypocrites and manipulators are denied what they ask for back in chapter 6. Jesus himself is denied what he asks for in Gethsemane. When he prays, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. So Jesus isn't throwing out every possible caveat or qualification here. What we need to notice is that among those caveats or qualifications, don't ask for self-indulgent things and, 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 and things that are not according to God's will. Jesus is giving us another good one. We are guided away from foolish things and unhelpful things and from praying for jets and cars and stuff like that 
by being told that the Father will give good gifts or good things. And that's worth a moment's reflection. Because we often ask for stuff, jets, cars, healings, you know, all kinds of things circumstantial that in fact aren't good for us. You know, if you have children or have had children, you know they sometimes ask for seriously unwise things. Children can't always tell what actually is a stone, though it may look to them like bread. Isn't it good that God has not always answered your prayers the way you asked them? I mean, think back on all the stuff you've ever wished for, pleaded for, waited for from the Lord. And some of the times when he told you no or told you to wait, I mean, if it had just been yes, 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 what lessons might you not have learned? What alternatives might you never have discovered? Think of the things you prayed for as a little kid or as a desperate teenager, or that you'd have more money for candy, or that summer would last forever, or that a cute boy would ask you out, or that the baseball scout would notice you. Isn't it a good thing? But your father said no. You can probably see that with hindsight. You can see the folly, the short-sightedness, even sometimes the self-destructiveness and the stuff that we ask for with hindsight. But we need to apply that hindsight to a present-day perspective because we ask for circumstantial things all the time, you know, that my days would be pain-free and happy and safe and secure and successful. We're always praying for circumstantial things like my portfolio won't crash and my sports team will win and my culture will be friendly and my nation will be prosperous and my wife will be healthy and my neighbor will be cooperative. Well, maybe those aren't really bread either. And maybe we're not so different from those children who asked for what wasn't really good. It's a good thing God is not subject to our definition of what is good. It's a good thing that he's not our genie to grant whatever we ask, whenever we want it. Let me point out as well that all the circumstantial blessings we want, we can ask for those things, but they may or may not be good. right? And that's where most Christians' complaints come in. Well, I, I prayed for healing and I didn't get it. Or I prayed that God would give me a spouse and I didn't get it. Or I prayed for a job offer and I didn't get it. Those are all circumstantial things. But you rarely hear God's children talking about the spiritual requests they pleaded for, right? Uh, and, and claiming they didn't get them, like faith or forgiveness or holiness. What child of God has insistently prayed for more humility? and not become more humble? What child of God has insistently prayed for patience and not become more patient? Or prayed for the capacity to love and not become more loving? What child of God has insistently prayed for wisdom and not become more wise? See, these are good gifts regardless of our circumstances. And these are more obviously than granted. Not if you think I'm just explaining away the good gifts thing, listen again to Luke's version of this same teaching because Jesus himself indicates this is what he has in mind because he doesn't say good things or good gifts in Luke's version. He says the Holy Spirit. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, Luke eleven thirteen, 13, 
How much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? What child of God has insistently prayed for the Holy Spirit and not been granted the Holy Spirit? So followers of Jesus, ask God for whatever you need, whatever you desire, but remember, the determination of what's actually good is up to him who always knows the difference, him whose plans are never short-sighted, him whose will we say we want to be done in his kingdom to come. We are to trust our Father to hear us, care for us, and grant what is good, and trust him enough to ask, ask insistently, but ask believing he will, ask, he will answer rightly. So Jesus assures us in the first place, then, it's worth it to pray, verses 7 through 11. Secondly, Jesus commands us, keep the golden rule. Verse 12, um, we are to treat others as we want to be treated. Verse 12 says, so whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. I want to be told the truth rather than flattered, so I'll tell the truth to others. I want to be respected, not held in contempt, so I'll respect others. I want to be fed when I'm hungry, so I'll feed others who are hungry. I want to be picked up from the side of the road when I'm walking through the rain, so I'll pick up somebody else on the side of the road when I'm walking through the rain. This principle has been called the golden rule for centuries. Some say it's because the Roman emperor Alexander Severus inscribed it on his palace wall in gold. Don't know if that's true or not. But others say it's called the golden rule because it is so precious and that it's the gold standard, you might say, of ethical conduct, of the right, righteous treatment of others. It's a very useful rule, and I want to be careful there. I don't mean it's a pragmatic or utilitarian rule. Um, there is an older generation of commentators that read the golden rule as if it were a prescription for making the world a better place because you will encourage or shame or trick your neighbor into treating you the way you want to be treated by taking the first step. Like, so treat others the way you want to be treated so that you can get people to do that. That's not what Jesus is saying here. We must obey the rule, treat others the way you wish you were treated, not because it's going to be successful in reforming that neighbor or society, but because that rule is right, because Jesus said so. It's not always going to work out in your favor. It's not always going to cause a neighbor to treat you well. No, it's a useful rule, rather, because it's so versatile. You can apply it in many different situations. It's easy to understand. It's convicting. J.C. Ryle says it settles a hundred difficult points, which in a world like this are continually arising between man and man. It prevents the necessity of laying down endless little rules for our conduct in specific cases. It sweeps the whole debatable ground with one mighty principle. It shows us a balance and measure by which everyone may see at once what is his duty. The golden rule, then is a great summary command given by Jesus, and it is a command, not advice, do also to them what you wish others would do. It's a useful 
rule, and it's a biblical rule too. Jesus says, for this is the law and the prophets. Uh, is the law and the prophets means it summarizes the law and the prophets, at least the, the part of the law and prophets that talks about how we treat other people, the, the man word part of the moral law. Right? This is not one of those kind of rhetorical, absolute-sounding statements, but it encompasses a lot of the law and prophets. Paul speaks similarly in Galatians 5.14, the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There are other passages then that summarize the law, say the law and the prophets are loving your neighbor as yourself, not just Galatians 5, not just Leviticus 19 verse 18 where that phrase originally comes from, but Jesus himself will say all the commandments come down to loving God and loving your neighbor as yourself in Matthew 22. Love fulfills the law according to Romans 13. I say all that so you'll notice that the broad biblical principle of loving your neighbor is really the same thing you're getting in the golden rule in verse 12. Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. Right? To consider their needs and their interests. Whether you're, you're saying the great summary of the law with regard to how you treat people, whether you're saying it as love your neighbor as yourself, or you're saying it as treat your neighbor the way that you wish to be treated, In both ways, we are being taught the will of God and the word of God to put to death our own desires. It's to seek the good of our neighbor rather than to seek the good of ourselves. In both expressions. Well, it's a practical rule. It's a biblical rule. It's also a positive rule. A Jew to others as you want them to do unto you, uh, is different from what you find in other sources in the ancient world, which is the negative form. Sometimes it's called the silver rule. Don't do to others what you don't want them to do to you, right? So don't steal, don't slander, uh, because you don't want to be stolen from, you don't want to be slandered. This version of the rule, the so-called silver rule, appears in the Apocrypha. It appears in Rabbi Hillel. It was taught by the Roman Stoics. Something like it is even apparent in Confucius. But you'll see that Jesus' positive version, which is unique, actually go out and do something for your neighbor, is more demanding than the negative form. Jesus' version of the golden rule here forbids sins of omission, not just commission. You, you the silver rule, don't steal, don't hurt, don't do things that people wouldn't, you wouldn't want them to do to you. You can obey that by doing nothing, by locking your door and sitting on your couch. But you cannot obey the golden rule that way. Jesus is putting on us a proactive requirement to love our neighbor and to serve their interests. You know, if it were just the silver rule, then you could pass that test in Matthew 25, Right? Jesus says, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels, because I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me, naked and you did not clothe me, sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Well, you got as the silver rule, you could say, well, I didn't do anything wrong. And Jesus says, depart from me, you cursed. It's a proactive, positive requirement, then, that we're being given in Matthew 7, 12. 
And Jesus' attitude then towards being this kind of a loving neighbor is well illustrated in the parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke 10. I won't read the whole thing, but I'll summarize it because it brings us to the same place. Right In Luke 10, Jesus is questioned by a lawyer, how do I get eternal life? And Jesus and the lawyer, they start with a basic point that eternal life requires obeying God's law. Now, Jesus doesn't stop there to explain how impossible that actually is so that everybody needs a savior. But they agree eternal life requires obedience to God's law. And Jesus says obeying God's law includes love for God and love for your neighbor. So the lawyer, realizing how hard that could be, asks, can I restrict who is my neighbor? Can we make this commandment a little more realistic and doable? Who is my neighbor? So Jesus tells him the story. You're probably familiar with it. Story about a traveler from Jerusalem who's assaulted on the highway. A bunch of supposedly righteous people pass him by without helping. And then a Samaritan, who would have been kind of a natural adversary, uh, he has compassion and gives this poor man lavish help. And you can see in that the point that, yes, even a despised Samaritan can be a Jew's neighbor. But Jesus isn't done. He's actually making a bigger point, not just about Samaritans and Jews, but about the lawyer's attitude. How few people can I love and still deserve eternal life? Because Jesus then says that we are supposed to become a neighbor proactively. He says to the lawyer, which one of those people who passed the victim by... Which one of them was a neighbor? Who became a neighbor to that man? And and the lawyer has to say it was the Samaritan, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Not just include Samaritans in your circle of friends, but go and be a neighbor to the people that God puts into your life that actually need your help. It's a positive, proactive expectation of love, you see. The same as the golden rule and the same as the Old Testament scriptures that preceded it. That's what I mean when I say the golden rule is positive. How often in your life do you wish someone would have noticed, someone would have cared, somebody would have helped you? Somebody would have been proactive with their neighborly love. Well, put yourself in the shoes of those who God providentially puts in your path. And ask yourself, how can I be a neighbor? Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets, says Jesus. So, Jesus assures us it's worth it to pray. Jesus commands us, keep the golden rule. Lastly, Jesus teaches us those things are connected. There is a connection between expectant, insistent prayer for good things from your Father and doing unto others as you'd have them do unto you. If you look at your biblical text here, verse 12 begins in the ESV with the word so. It's a bit understated. The word is actually therefore. Therefore, whatever you wish others would do to you, do also to them. 
Now that has puzzled many students of this passage down to the present day, many uh, preachers and scholars, and, and some have said, well, maybe this is you know, just sort of a throwaway habit of speaking. I doubt it. Others have tried to explain that, therefore, at the beginning of verse 12, which appears to connect the previous paragraph to the golden rule, they've explained it as, well, maybe the therefore is looking back to the whole Sermon on the Mount. Maybe it's because it's it summarizes some of the things we've heard, right? About you know, loving your enemies and things like that. But I would disagree. A, a lot of the Sermon on the Mount to this point does not fit under the description of doing unto others as you'd have them do unto you. Do unto others doesn't summarize what Jesus taught about fasting in chapter 6. Do unto others doesn't summarize laying up heavenly treasure necessarily. Doing unto others doesn't summarize learning from the lilies not to worry. Doing unto others doesn't summarize pray thy kingdom come. And besides, the golden rule really goes even a step beyond those ethical teachings back in chapter 5 that are supposedly being summarized. A lot of those just intensify the negative. Not just don't murder, but also don't say hateful things and call your neighbor stupid. Not just, you know, don't commit adultery, but even more, don't lust in your heart. And Jesus is going beyond intensified negatives with the golden rule to give us a positive. And even if it were true that the golden rule here then is meant to sum up the whole sermon, it would still include verses 7 through 11, wouldn't exclude them. There is, to a greater or lesser degree then, some connection between ask, seek, knock, your father gives good gifts, and whatever you wish others would do to you, do also to them. Jesus says so because he uses the word therefore. But how are they connected? What's the logic? Jesus does not explain his therefore. And in fact, it's not necessarily the case that there's only one answer to that question. What's the therefore there for? Well, sorting through a number of uh, proposals to try to glean those that are most likely and most helpful, one possible connection that explains the therefore is that God has given us good gifts, right, that are primarily spiritual, especially giving you the Holy Spirit, according to Luke's version, right? Spiritual gifts are the primary good things, the the truly best good things that God gives us. And God's Spirit, of course, bears fruit in your life. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. Sounds a lot like do to others as you would have them do to you. The Holy Spirit makes loving your neighbor and keeping the golden rule kind of second nature. And without the Holy Spirit, it's not really even possible to seek the good of your neighbor. I mean, everyone claims to admire the golden rule, but no one really lives by it. But the Holy Spirit makes God's love to us overflow out of us so that we do unto others as we want them to do unto us. So that is arguably a connection, right? That because what we're asking for and what good gifts we're being given by the Father are essentially spiritual gifts, including the Spirit himself, therefore, we love our neighbor. 
another suggestion for making sense of the logical connection here is consider the posture that prayer puts us in. It humbles us, requires us to depend on our Father, it makes beggars of us. Beggars because we're sinners. We don't have any rights, any claims. Martin Lloyd-Jones sees a connection here. That if I see myself as a beggar, then I will not be haughty and impatient towards my neighbor. In fact, I will pity him, Lloyd-Jones says, as a fellow dupe of the devil. I will have compassion on him rather than compete against him. I only stand by grace. I'm not worthy to be called the son of the heavenly father, so I can show grace to others too. I can do unto others as I want them to do unto me. But one more suggestion, one more explanation of Jesus' teaching here that I think makes the most sense of all and is the most helpful is that verses 7 through 11 are related to verse 12 by the trustworthy goodness of God. Meaning this, if you have free, full access to heaven, to your Abba Father, if you can have full confidence that he will grant you everything you actually need, if you believe you are that loved, that well cared for, then you are so secure, so richly blessed and richly supplied that it will affect your attitude to your neighbor. You don't need to worry. You don't need to grasp. You don't need to compete. You don't need to control. I mean, think about why you don't do unto others. Why you don't love your neighbor as yourself. I mean, besides all the obvious ones, because we're greedy, angry, self-absorbed people by nature, But even as a Christian, right, why would I not stop and help that guy who's broken down? Why would I not reach out to that friend who I know is grieving? Why would I not do the golden rule? Well, I'm worried I don't have the money. I don't have time. I don't have the bandwidth for that. I don't have the energy. I can't risk my safety. I need to protect my rights. I need to protect my reputation. I need to safeguard my plans. See how all that becomes irrelevant? If you are a child of the Father who asks, knocks, seeks, and receives exactly what he needs, the best of all gifts from the best of all givers, you see how that liberates you to do unto others not what's helpful to you, to do unto others what they actually need, as you wish they would act. If you know your real needs and wants will always be satisfied, then you are set free to serve the real needs and wants of others. You can love others as God loved you. Now you can forgive others as God forgave you. You can be generous and kind and patient like you wish other people would be because God has been generous, kind, and patient with you, and he'll keep being that way. He's your father. I think this idea that God has so richly blessed us and privileged us that it frees us to serve and love other people, I think this idea is captured by the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 9, where he's appealing to the Corinthians to be part of this great, you know, diaconal offering, this great relief effort that he's doing. And listen to verse 8 of 2 Corinthians 9. God is able to make all grace abound to you, 
So that having all contentment in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Referring specifically to loving and helping your neighbors in Jerusalem. He's given you so much, now you can abound in every good work. You don't need to be selfish. You don't need to be scared. You are well cared for by your Father. So you can do unto others as you want them to do unto you. I realize it can be hard to keep that mindset in a moment of testing and pressure. But that's one of the very things we can ask and seek and knock for. Give us the right mindset. Give us the right confidence as children that we should have towards our Father that sets us free to serve. So there's a connection between asking, seeking, knocking, and being confident that your Father will give good gifts and doing unto others as they should do unto you. Whether you see that connection in terms of the Holy Spirit's enabling or the humbling effect of prayer or best of all, the connection being that you are in the care of your good Father whom you can trust to give good gifts. Jesus says, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him, therefore, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. So, in conclusion, Jesus assures us it's worth it to pray with urgency, using the access, the opportunity that the Father gave us in Christ, and to pray with the confidence that he'll give us good gifts. Jesus commands us to keep the golden rule, to treat others as we'd want to be treated. You know, to do that uprightly, selflessly, proactively. And Jesus teaches us that those things are connected. Because God is so good to his praying children, we are free to be selfless. Our Father's good gifts make us willing and able to do good unto others just as we'd want them to do unto us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus, our teacher, Jesus, our savior, Jesus, our liberator. We thank you for setting us free from our natural blindness and selfishness. We thank you for his instruction but also the gift of his spirit. Please make us more like him as we seek to obey him. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Our hymn is number 518, Come My Soul with Every Care. Would you stand please to sing 518?